If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake. I'm the pastor here at Midtown Church, and I love that uh, you're here with us as we wrap up our uh, Sundays at Briker Woods. And with that, we also wrap up a series that we've been in for, for quite some time in the book of John. And so uh, this series that we've been in, and John, the primary point of it was to try to help us grow in our love for Jesus as we see who he is and what he's done for us. And hopefully that that's been a fruitful study for you guys. Um, because of the merger, we are uh, going to cut our series short in John. And so the last three weeks, if you've been with us, I just kind of took the liberty to pick three of my favorite passages in the second half of the book of John and teach those. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. And it's really just an excerpt of Jesus's high priestly prayer. All of John 17 is a prayer. It's the prayer that he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane that in the other gospels accounts of Jesus life, you don't get to see all that he was praying that night. But if you remember, you know, he goes into the garden and his disciples fall asleep and he goes and wakes them up and then they fall asleep. He's like, what was he doing? What was he praying about all that time? Well, you see a lot of that in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. And we're going to just be looking at a section of that near the end of the prayer this morning. But I think it's very relevant to us heading into the merger starting next week because you see, and we'll see in a second, what Jesus is praying for has to do, everything to do with unity with his followers. And so this is going to be, I think, like I said, pretty relevant for us. But before I get into the message, I need to take a picture. This is just being sentimental. So hang in there. One, two, three. There we go. Good smiles. I don't think anyone blinked. All right. Now, this is a pretty wild morning. It really is. For me, personally, and, and Krista, you get to see her emotions come in. I'm going to try not to cry. We'll see how well I do on that. But like, it's just been amazing what God's done in the last two years as we've been here at Brikerwood. So actually, technically, our two-year anniversary would be September 8th. And so we're just short of that. But I think this weekend actually marked, uh, marked when we, did a commi- we were commissioned out by another church, one of our sinning churches, Hill Country Bible Church, Austin, on this Sunday, two years ago getting ready to launch Midtown Church. And so it's just been amazing to see what God's done over the course of these last few years. And we really look forward to what he's going to do in this next chapter of Midtown. But it's going to be, it's going to take love. It's going to take unity. It's going to take what Jesus is praying for here in this passage for God to really be glorified in this next chapter. And so let's look at this passage together and see what he prays for. So let me just read it. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. The the words will be up here as well. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now, let me stop there real quick because that's Jesus giving some context about who he's praying for. And what you'll see is that everything up to this point, he'd been praying really for like stuff between him and the father and praying for his disciples, the faithful 11, and perhaps you could say the 70 or 120 faithful followers of Jesus. He had been praying for them, but then he moves and transitions right here in verse 20 to begin praying for the people that would believe through their word, which honestly, guys, that's us. That's every believer that ever has been since the disciples and their followers, like everyone has come to Christ has ultimately come to Christ through their word spreading throughout, you know, the, the globe throughout the century. So this is us. Jesus is <clears throat> what he prays for here. He's literally praying for us. And here's what he, he asks in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you father are in me and I in you. 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, this is a pretty uh, uh, amazing prayer. What I want to do is just kind of break it down and look at what exactly Jesus asked for here, why he asked for it, and then how in the world is it possible, all right? So that's where we're going. What, what he asked for, why he asked for it, and how it's possible. Now, it's also helpful to know in context that this prayer is taking place mere hours before Jesus is crucified. This is the night before He's crucified. Later in this night, perhaps an hour, two hours later, he's arrested. He's, he's handed over, he's falsely tried. By, by about, I guess, probably somewhere in 12 to 18 hours later, he's, he's hanging on the cross, being crucified. So this is Jesus praying for this. This is what we get to see him praying about. Like what in the world is on his mind right before he's going to die for the sins of the world, die for us? What in the world is, is on his mind? And what we see and what he asked for is this, that we would be one. That we would be one. I mean, look at it. Let me highlight it for us real quick. That, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So kind of two parts of this praying for unity. That we, his followers, would be one and that we would also be one with him and the Father. This is what he's on his mind. Now, this is, stands out to me. Like, this says something about the importance of this request, doesn't it? That this is what he's going to be asking for right before he goes to the cross. I mean, I think about what are the things that we often pray for? What are the things that we are always praying for? It's, it's stuff like, will you bless this food, right? Which clearly has been blessed if it's like, you know, awesome steak in front of us. But we're still asking for him to bless it. But anyways, we pray for that. We pray for safety. We pray for a good night's sleep. We, we pray for success. We pray for happiness. We pray. But like Jesus is here praying for this. And I'm not saying we can't pray for any of that stuff. But it's worth noting that this is what he's praying for. And I wonder, do we ever pray for this? I think we should. Now, why, why is he praying for this? I think there's a couple of things worth noting right here. First of all, things that Jesus could have asked for, out of all the things he could have asked for, he asked for this. Okay? The second thing worth noting is this, that the oneness enjoyed within the Godhead is the measure of the oneness that he wants for us. Okay? The oneness that he enjoys in the Godhead is the measure of the type of oneness that he wants for us. Now this, this kind of unity, this kind of oneness, this kind of loving community isn't simply a, uh, hey, I hope, I wish you well kind of oneness. I'm for you kind of oneness. Or I at least, I don't have anything against you kind of oneness. Like that, that's not the kind of oneness. That's not the measure of the oneness that Jesus is asking for here. Now the, the, the measure of what he's asking for is, is displayed in the kind of unity that exists within the, within the Godhead, within the Trinity. Specifically in this passage, Jesus narrows in on, on the type of relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. And that that's the level of unity and oneness that he wants for all of us. Now, what kind of, what kind of unity is that? Well, I mean, we could spend all morning on this topic, but let me just, let me just give you three examples. First of all, within the, within the Trinity, what we see is this mutual valuing of. And then we also see a, a mutual mission 
And a third, a, a mutual dependence. I mean, just take those. I mean, there's more to, that could be said on this, but if you just take those things, that's a picture of the type of unity that Jesus is praying would exist between each other, with, within all of us, and within the entire church as a whole, all of Jesus' followers. That this mutual valuing of that exists between the Father and the Son, if you think about that, like, what do you see within the Godhead? If you pay attention to Scripture, what you see is that there's this, this uh, Tim Keller refers to it, C.S. Lewis before him, of this dance, of this dance where each member of the Godhead is trying to exalt and glorify the other. And so it's always this giving of and, and humbly serving the other to lift up the other, and then the other's doing that for them, and it's just this revolving, you know, you're the best. No, you're the best. No, you're the, you're the grace. You're the grace. I mean, you see, what does the Son do who's equal with the Father? I mean, it's one God. It's three persons. They're all equally God. God the Son, though completely equal with the Father, doesn't have the privileges of deity, something to hang on to. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbles himself and becomes a man. And doing so, he's being, allowing himself to be sent by the Father, joyfully going, willingly going to serve the Father, to submit to his equal, the Father, to serve, to serve the Father so that everyone who believes in Christ's death can enter into a relationship with the Father and be their, his adopted sons and daughters. So the Father would get the glory. But then what do we know? We know that the Father then in turn looks at Jesus and says, okay, you, you got me there. You served me in an incredible way. You exalted me in an incredible way there. But here's the thing. When everybody comes to faith or when people come to faith and one day I will just ensure that there will be a day where every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that your name is the greatest name above all names and that at the name of Jesus, everyone is going to be... Philippians 2.11. And when you see this thing, where the son's serving the father, the father's serving the son, and the son's saying, you're the best of fathers. Like this mutual valuing of, man, that's to be a picture of the oneness that Jesus is praying would exist between us. And then this mutual mission, that they have the same mission, they're working together, there's mutual dependence. They have different roles within the Godhead, but each one having significant roles and depending on the other for their other role. So the father sends the son, the son goes, and then they send the spirit, and the spirit has a role to play. Like this mutual dependence is just beautiful. It's beautiful. And that, my friends, is the measure of the type of oneness that Jesus is praying for here. When he asks, what is Jesus asking for here? It's that, it's that kind of oneness that would exist between his followers. But not just that, but that also, the third thing he's asking for here is that it would exist between us and God himself, right? And we go back to verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And just a quick point here, but again, friends, this is our God. This is what God is like. On the night before he's going to die, his prayer is that we, his followers, would be one with him. Our God is not a distant God. He is not an absent God. He is not an uncaring God. He is a God who comes to us, dies for us. The night before he dies, he's praying that we would be one with him. He's come to pursue us, and he's saying, this is what I want. I want my people to be with me, to be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Uh, what a beautiful picture into the heart of God. 
Because that's, that's what God's like. That's what Jesus is asking for. But then we can look into it and ask the next question. Like, why is he asking for this? Why is he asking for this? And in verse 21, you get three hints of why he's asking. First, two of them are kind of subtle. The, the third one is just clear. Not, it's clear as day. The, but let me just kind of walk through these three things. Let me read the verse again. So he says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Okay? Now, these three things, again, it gives a clue. Like, why is he asking this? The first one is this. He's asking this because he knows this is what we were made for. So the reason he's asking this is because we were made for this. We were made for this kind of loving, perfect, and like community, unity to be experienced between each other and between us and God. And being God, Jesus knows that. He knows that we were made for it. And he wants it for us. Friends, we, we were born out of the love of a community, the love of the Trinity. When you think about why in the world did God create us, it wasn't because he was lonely. That God for all of eternity past has enjoyed the perfect loving community of the Trinity, of the, of the, Son, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he didn't create because he didn't have love and needed to create someone to love and to receive love. No, he had tons of love in, in himself, within the Godhead. No, he created because of a spilling out of the love that he had to create so that others could be ushered into the type of loving relationship that he was already experienced. And we go to Genesis one twenty six when it talks about God creating man. This is what we read. Then God said, let us, us, plural there, community, Godhead, Trinity, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. As one theologian said, we were were born out of the laughter of the Trinity. And here's the thing. Jesus knew that this is what we were made for. That we were made in the likeness of God, meaning that we we were designed to function best within community. We were designed to experience loving community. We weren't ever designed to live on an island. We were experienced to, to, we were designed and we were born out of this incredible experience of unity that Jesus is asking for us here in this prayer. Jesus knows that our happiness is, is not found for seeking your own happiness, but the happiness of another. And Jesus knows that real joy is not found in isolation, but in community. So this is what he knows about us, that we were made for this. And so he asks for us to have it. And the reason, the second reason why he asks this is because he's having to ask it. <laughs> the reason he's asking this is because we don't have it. We were made for it, but we don't have this. And the reason we don't get to experience this kind of love and community that we were made for is because of sin. That sin uh, wreaks havoc on this kind of perfect unity perfect community, perfect love that we were designed for. That sin comes in and isolates. Sin comes in and exalts self. Sin kills community. You think about the very first sin when we read in Genesis chapter 3. Right right away, 
the devastation of sin is that our relationship with God is severed and the relationship between Adam and Eve is severed. And God comes in and says, hey, what have you done? And Adam's like, hey, the woman you gave me made me do it. <laughs> you know, like, ah, it's not such a good start. But that's because of sin. Sin exalts self. Sin causes us, the lie of, lie of Satan and the garden was to say, hey, you can be God. You can make yourself like God. And we buy into that and we think, okay, now I know best. And that lie has lodged in every single one of our hearts and it leads to a lack of community because all of us think that we know best. All of us think that our way is best. All of us think that we're most important. All of us say we got to look out for number one. We got to, who's going to look out for me if I'm not looking out for me? That I should and I have every right to, to put myself first. That idea is lodged into every single one of our hearts. That's the result of sin. So we don't have the kind of community that Jesus is praying for us here because because of sin. One theologian put it this way, sin creates a relentless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self and its needs that completely isolates you from other people. Jesus knows that. He knows that's not what we were, how we were designed to live. And he knows that someone has to cure that. And so Jesus prays this prayer, and the next day he goes and dies on the cross for the sins of the world. That Jesus prays this prayer and then says, I know what it's going to take for you, Father, to say yes to this prayer. It's going to take my death for them. And Jesus willingly lays down his life. And in doing so, friends, he, he fors- he's forsaken by the Father. That the kind of unity that he's enjoyed for all of eternity is ripped, he's ripped away from it so that we who have been ripped away from God could be reconciled to God through his death. And Jesus is the cure. And Jesus' death made it possible for us to have what Jesus is asking for here. And I think one of the reasons that Jesus is willing to do that is because he also knows that if we as his people can be unified. They can experience this kind of oneness together through his death and resurrection, what he's done for us. If we can be one, then it's not just going to affect us, a small pocket of people. It's going to affect the entire world. When you look at that, that's the part in this passage that's so clear. When you ask, why does he pray for this? He says it. It's clear as day. I mean, go back to verse 21. What's he say? When he's praying, and like, friends, let me just say, we should obsess over this. Like, we, please do not let this be lost on you, what he says here. This is what he says, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, right? Purpose statement, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And if that wasn't clear enough, in verse 23, he goes on to say, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus prays that we would be one because we were made for that and because we don't have it. But he also knows that if, if we do have it in him, that the whole world's going to be affected. If we do it, the whole world may believe. See, the, the truth is, people don't want to believe in Jesus. Because 
in belief in Jesus, though completely a free gift and the greatest news ever, it's hard to ever really consider it fully without an unbiased look at it. And now most of the honest skeptics that I've talked to will tell me that they have a bias in not wanting to believe the gospel because they know that in doing so, they have to admit that there's a God and they have to submit to him. And it's hard to come at that with an unbiased opinion. If someone came up to you and said, hey, I'm your master and you've got to be my servant forever and ever. What would your response be? Would you just sit down and say, well, let's talk about that. Let's kick that idea around a little bit. No, hey, you'd choke the guy. Or you'd run away. Maybe you'd say yes. I don't know why. In the world. But you're not sitting there having a rational conversation or at least an unbiased conversation about that idea. And here comes Jesus. I'm the Lord. I'm the God of the universe. I've died that you can be set free, but also you didn't acknowledge that I'm your God. It's hard to enter into that conversation unbiasedly. There's lots of reasons why people don't want to believe that Jesus is their Savior. And yet, here Jesus is saying, if you would be one, as a father and I one, God, if you would make them one, then the world may believe. The world may believe. Like, how in the world is that possible? That through our unity, the intellectual skepticism and good questions that people have, the, all of the baggage that people bring into trying to consider Christianity, like, all of that could be, like, all that could be overcome if they just see the oneness of his people. Jesus is saying, if this would happen, then people will believe. The world will know. What kind of love is that, friends? What kind of love is that? So we think about that and we think, how, right? How would by, by seeing that we're one lead to people believing? And the answer to that is only understood if you understand what Christian love is supposed to be. See, Christian love is always supposed to be visible love. Christian love is not just emotional. It's not just good sentiment towards somebody. It's not wishing you well. It's not simply, at least I could say, it's, it's not only that. It's so much more than that. The Christian love, and just let me give you three things real quick that, about Christian love, and you can use this as a bit of a, a test for yourself. Like, am I loving like this? The first is that Christian love is costly love. The Christian love is costly love. The, the reason... The reason that uh, Christian love is visible and powerful enough to cause people to believe that the Father sent the Son is because Christian love is meant to be costly love. I mean, think about Acts chapter 4, right? That the early church, they like literally sold their land. <laughs> like they had people sell their stuff when other people in the church were within, had a need. They sold stuff so that they could meet the needs of one another. And we're told in that time, God was adding people to their numbers every single day. Like, that's the picture. What would cause them to do that? Well, because they knew what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that they knew the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Though he was rich, he became poor on our behalf so that through his poverty we would be made 
rich. They know the grace of Christ. They know what Jesus himself did in sacrificing himself, costly love, and then they're moved to love like that and enabled by God's love to love like that. And so they begin to love in that way. And friends, man, that's how we are called to love. And when we love, like people can see what you do with your money. People can see what you do with your calendar. People can see what you do with your time. People can see that stuff. And when we love with costly love, with that kind of generous love, people pay attention to it because it stands out. It's abnormal. Talked about this before, and I don't have time to get into it much right here, but friends, I like to remind you guys that Chris and I have two cars, and both of them are given to us by Christians who loved us in a way that I just, just blows me away still. And the people that come in contact and get to hear that story, see that and say, man, that's different. That, like, I don't know that. I don't know that kind of relating to each other. That's, that's, that doesn't fit in my stereotypical paradigm of how people interact. Giving you cars for free? <laughs> Buying you cars? Like, what in the world? Yeah, because we love with a costly love because Jesus loved us with a costly love. It doesn't have to be that we just give cars away. You cook food, you serve, you mow yards, you, you, whatever it would be. When we love like that, it's got this incredible impact on others. She said, they'll believe, that they may believe that the Father sent me. Another thing about the way that we love that can be powerful and visible to cause people to believe is this. That Christian love is powerful because it's impartial impartial love. At least it's supposed to be. A Christian love is supposed to be impartial love, where it's not, you know, you have to measure up in a certain kind of way or fit in a certain kind of group of people. That the world says, you just, you know, uh, birds of a feather stick together, right? That you just find people who look like you or talk like you or think like you or like the things that you do, and that's where you find friendship. But in Christianity, the thing that bonds us together is what we see in verse 20 here. In verse 20, Jesus refers to them as being, um, that those, the, the people he's praying for, the, all those who will believe in me through their word. And the uniting thing about us is what we believe. <laughs> it's, it's not how we measure up and it's not what we're like and it's not our background and it's not our culture. It's, it's that we have all, Come to understand an incredible truth that though we're sinners, God loved us so much that he died for us. And Christ, through his death and his resurrection, made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And when you believe that, then you become a part of the family of God. And anyone, no matter what their background, their political view, their culture, their race, their, their language, whatever, you meet someone else who believes that and you've met a brother or a sister. And you are united and you are one. The thing that binds us together is what God has done for us and our belief in that. And therefore, we are to love each other impartially. There's no, like, certain standard that you have to get to. There's no way you measure up and for you to be accepted here. It's just, no, a thing that we have in common is that we all recognize we don't measure up. And yet God loves us enough that he, he died for us even though. That kind of love that goes across all kinds of barriers, that's abnormal love, my friends. And when people come in contact with that, it's powerful. 
staggering. Heading into this merger, we have an opportunity before us to love like that. Hill Country Central, they're different than us. I mean, they don't have the same history as us. We don't have a lot of the same background. They have a little different demographics, more college students. I mean, there's things that are different. They have a lot of, they have a number of international students that come from all over the world, which is so awesome. But there's going to be things that are distinctives about them that aren't true of us and things that are true of us that aren't true of them. Are we going to love with an impartial love? The love that we can have is an impartial love because of what Christ has done for us. It's incredible. Finally, our love is also to be a forgiving love. And friends, a forgiving love is another kind of love that is staggering and powerful when you come in contact with it. That Christian love, we are to love each other, be one with each other, but on this side of heaven, we're not going to be perfect and we're not going to love each other perfectly. But one thing that the Bible, and Jesus in particular, is incredibly insistent on is that though there will be hurt within these relationships, let there never be unforgiveness or bitterness. That in light of what we've been forgiven by Christ, let us then turn and forgive. When that, when that characterizes our love for each other, and it stands out. It stands out. When we love each other costly, when we, when we love each other impartially, and when we love each other enough to forgive each other and to reconcile in light of how Christ has reconciled us, we can see what Jesus is on to here when he's praying that we would be one, that the world may believe. How are we doing with that? How's the church at large doing with that? So we hear that and we think, man, that's great. But also you hear that and you think, man, <laughs> we're not doing so awesome. And I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I can love that way, right? I mean, how is that even possible? The church certainly, sadly, doesn't have a great, back, a great background and a great reputation for being uh, a place where people are just loved and, and loved impartially and, and sacrificially. You hear so much more about churches splitting than churches merging or churches staying together and loving people, right? And it's like so, so sad. But we've got this opportunity in front of us. What are we going to do with that? We have an opportunity where people can look in and see us coming together with another church. And the ripple effects that could come from this, it could be incredible. That our community may believe that the Father sent the Son. The Son's loved us. Man, is it possible to do this? No, it's not. The reason we have a poor track record is because it is completely impossible to love in this way consistently in and of ourselves. But friends, listen. Abiding in Christ, like we talked about last week, through the power of our God in us, this is possible. You can love this way. I can love this way. Jesus, in his prayer here, says two things that tell us how this is possible. And both of these things, friends, if you, if you grasp them, if you, if you can wrap your mind around them, they'll, they'll take your breath away. In fact, both of these things, honestly, and this is not just preacher talk, like these two things, they're scandalous. 
You get this. Like it's going it, to, it's, it sounds crazy, but when you hear it and you understand what Jesus is saying, you can say, yeah, of course this is possible for us to be one. Listen to the first thing he says. First reason it's possible that we could be one is that we've been given God's glory. We've been given God's glory. Now, I grew up always hearing like, okay, you, we exist to give God glory, right? And that is true. And so, but this is weird because look what he says in verse 22. He says, the glory that you, Jesus talking to the Father, the glory that you've given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? He's giving glory to us, his church, his followers, Well, the word uh, glory here is the word doxa, which refers to the nature and acts of God. Like essentially who God is and what God has done. And here Jesus is saying that he has given us the same glory that the Father has given him, meaning he has given us his divine nature, which we just talked about last week. 2 Peter 1.4, that we are partakers of the divine nature. The God, as we abide in him, the vine to the branches, God gives us his very life. He imparts his very nature so that in us, as we are abiding in him, can love like he loves. This is how he has given his glory to us. And friends, because he has, we're not left on our own just to try to be really nice people. Then we're able to draw life from God to be able to have the very character of God emulate through us. We've been enabled by what Jesus has done for us to be able to love like Jesus loves. That's why this is possible. And the second reason that this is possible, and I just, like, again, this is... This is an amazing statement. Like to me, if you get your mind wrapped around this, what Jesus says here, I'm about to say, like it's like a Moses moment. Like you're going to want to take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Like, I'm serious. like this is a crazy, crazy thing that Jesus says. Two words at the end of verse 23. See if you pick up on them. He says this. Well, I think I highlighted it for you. But he says, it's I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even Friends, even as you loved me. See, the second reason this is possible for us to love one another, to experience and enjoy this kind of oneness and rich, loving community with each other and with God, the reason why is because we are loved even as the Father loves the Son. Here Jesus point blank says what's implied throughout Scripture, but right here, it's right in our face. You are the adopted child of the King. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you are the adopted child of the King. First John 1.12 says that all who receive him to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. If you've received him, you've believed in his name, you are his child. And here Jesus has the audacity to say that God's love for his adopted child is no less than his love for his own son. Let that sink in. It's crazy. Krista and I, many of y'all know, we adopted a son, Enoch. We have have two biological children. We have an adopted son, Camp and Enoch are two months apart in age. 
We love Enoch even as we love our son Camp. But we know that Enoch, all his life, will grow up because of his situation, carrying with him the question of, am I loved as much as they love their biological kids? And Krista and I would long for the opportunity just to tear apart our chest and let him see into our hearts that he would see that he is loved even as we love our other kids. Friends, on the cross, our God tore himself apart. That on the cross, the Son was forsaken by the Father so that we could look into it and see that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That we could look into that and see that we are indeed truly loved even as the Father loves the Son. Is that not amazing? It's incredible. The reason this makes us possible to love, like what Jesus is praying for here, is because you can't give what you don't have. We know in, a, in us, intuitively common sense, to love people completely. You can't love people completely until you know you're completely loved. But friends, hear this. You are completely loved. You are completely loved. You are loved even as the Father loves the Son. And therefore, you can love. That's why this is possible. God has given us himself. We're partakers of the divine nature. He's given us his glory that we can love like he loves. And he's loved us even as he's loved the Son. So friends, let us. Let us love. Let us, let us mutually value one another. Let us mutually be on mission with each other. Let us mutually depend on each other. Let us love with a costly love. Let us, let us forgive one another. Let us love impartially. Let's, let's let that happen as we head into this merger and beyond. But in all of that to happen, we need to let this sink in. So we're going to end with some time in worship and we're going to end in time of communion. You can come up and you can get the bread and you can get the cup. And friends, for this to sink in, you're going to have to work on it. Because this idea that we've been loved to this degree, it just kind of just, it, it's too good to be true. That's how we think about it. And so it doesn't sink into our heart. But here's a step. As we take communion, this is our chance to hold in our hands what we remember as Jesus' body broken for us. To hold in our hand the cup as we remember Jesus' blood spilled for us. Jesus torn apart for us from the Father that we could be brought near. As you take the bread and you take the cup, friends, what I want you to say to yourself is, I'm a loved even as the Father loves the Son. Let that come in that you can love as he has loved us. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for how you love. Thank you for this truth, Jesus. Thank you for praying for this. The night that you're gonna, the night before you're gonna die for us, God, may it ring true to us. May we be one, just as you and the Father are one. May we love each other that way. And we know that you love us that way. For your glory, God, 
And may the world believe. Amen.